Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that by it, that our love for you would be increased, that you would be our desire and our delight. And we thank you that you love us so dearly. Your love is better than life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This psalm taps into something that most people know, that the universal human experience is that our longings and our thirst cannot ultimately be satisfied or quenched by the things of this world. The philosopher Bertrand Russell expressed this in a quote that's uh, rather wordy. I mean, what do you expect? He's a philosopher. Um, so I shortened it a bit, and I think it captures what we're exploring today in Psalm 63. Russell in the early 1900s said, the center of me is always a curious, wild pain, a searching for something beyond what the world contains, something infinite, as an atheist, he said, I do not think it is to be found, but it is the love of my life. That's a very interesting statement. And this constant craving that human beings have is what uh, Peter Berger, the sociologist, said are signals of transcendence. Signals of transcendence. And David is following these signals as he's out in the wilderness and he is looking for something infinite, the God, the love of his life, whom he has found, even though he's seeking him. You see, out in the wilderness, David passionately sought satisfaction in God like a thirsty person gulping water after a long dry hike or, or like a voraciously hungry person craving a feast. And friends, our problem is not that we desire intensely, but that we direct our longings so often toward those things that can't bear that kind of weight. And so we look often to false fillers or counterfeit satisfiers. I read this week about uh, Sean McVay, who is uh, the Los Angeles Rams head coach. Now, I know it's only August here. This is not really a football illustration. It's more about life. And this article said that it's the Sean McVay moment. Now, why is that? Well, because he led his team to the Super Bowl, and they, are, and they won, of course. And people are saying that he's the best coach at 36 that's ever led a team, and he has the opportunity to be maybe the best coach ever. And so this article laid out his life, that he just bought a, a custom 9,000-square-foot house in a neighborhood with double security. He just got married at the Beverly Hills Hotel with a star-studded group of people coming. Amazon reportedly went after him with a significant multi-million dollar salary because of his phenomenal leadership skills. And yet, this is what the article said in the title and the subtitle. It said, inside the pressures that brought 
him to the pinnacle and why satisfaction is still so hard to come by. You reach the pinnacle in life and yet that satisfaction that we all seek for can be so elusive. David knows that this satisfaction is hard to come by. And so what does he do? He redirects his longings and our longings to God. And so friends, this psalm shows us what true Christian experience not only looks like, but actually feels like in our bones. We're to take these words, what they say, what they express about God, and we're to make them our own even when we don't sense what they are saying. And we do so so that our prayers and our singing are taking these words as our own, express what we believe and feel, even as they shape what we believe and feel when we don't believe and feel those things. You see, these words are meant to form within us a desire for God, that we might look to Him to be our satisfier. And so Bible headings often call this a, in one sense, a lament, but in a larger sense, a psalm of confidence when we're languishing, when we feel that God has lost us, and that at our point in life, we're feeling a kind of spiritual dryness. This is saying we can experience what David did, not perfectly, but truly nonetheless. This is real for him, and it's real for us. And so today, we're going to focus on verses 1 to 4, which is seeking after God, and then verses 5 to 8, which is about being satisfied in God. We'll pick up some of the latter themes and the latter verses more when we look at Psalm 46 next week. But let's start by looking at verses 1 to 4, seeking after God. This has been called a, a song of a distressed worshiper who longed for the intervention and nearness of God in a trial. This wasn't done in an office somewhere or at Starbucks. He was in the midst of a trial. And so we praise, O oh God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. Now notice David is not here expressing his circumstances or his prayer requests, though that is a valid thing to pray. But what is he praying? He is declaring his relationship and his connection with God. You are my God. I belong to you and you belong to me. You are, if I may say this, you are my prized possession. Friends, this is so very personal. And note, he's not saying, you are my parents' God, you are my spouse's God, you are my grandparents' God, you are my church's God. And we all do share in praying this. It's a good thing. But it's personal. Can you say with David, oh God, you are my God? Now at the heart and at the beginning of this prayer, there is a paradox built into it. Notice that David is saying, God is mine. I belong to him. He belongs to me. And yet I'm seeking, in a sense, what I don't fully experience. And so there's a paradox. The pastor Dick Lucas has said, 
we long for God precisely because we have found Him. And we could add to that because He has found us. You see, there's a way to think about this, I think even affectionately, if I could bring it down to a simpler, uh, homey kind of way of thinking of it. When we play hide-and-seek, you know, there are times where you're older and you never want to be found. But uh, I played hide-and-seek a few weeks ago. We were at a wedding in Oregon, and our whole family was there. And we were in a cabin together, an Airbnb, and our little three-year-old daughter and our one, uh, granddaughter and our one-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, they were um, trying to find Liz and me. And Grandpa did most of the hiding. And I would, you know, hide in a kind of just in the corner, and I could hear them looking around, and Liz said, give us a hint, you know, and I'd say her name, and she'd kind of wander, and, and it took her a while to find me, but I wanted to be found, and she found me. Now, you see, I, I don't know if it's right to say God is in a game with us like that, but the point is, when we are looking, when we are striving, friends, he wants to be found, <laughs> He's not going to a place where we are seeking but will never know him or see him. And so God has found us and David prays in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And his surroundings are accentuating his existential thirst. And maybe you know what this is like. Um, I had a, a minor procedure some years ago. And for a while, starting at like midnight, I couldn't have any water at all. And um, I began to get pretty thirsty. And to add to this, I'm on some medications for my blood pressure that tends to make my mouth like sawdust. So I bring water up here now. And I was going the duration for this procedure, and I said to the nurses, I said, and candidly, I was kind of panicky at that point, like, I have got to have some water. Well, we can't do that. Yeah, you can. <laughs> you can give me some ice or something. So they gave me a few little shavings of ice. But you may know in that kind of experience or after a long, dry hike in a dry place, you know what it's like to crave water. And when you get toward it, you're not thinking about manners and being polite. It's almost like you're pushing people out of the way. I have to have that. And so David, in his experience, is pining for God. He is parched and he is craving. And friends, this is a mark of a believer. A mark of a believer. Longing for God, who is to be found and has found us. And I want you to notice what David's response is. Look at verse 3. He says, I will praise you because your steadfast love is better than life. Now the steadfast love of God, in Hebrew it's hesed, it has been called the loyal love and covenant faithfulness of a sovereign king directed toward us. It is his mercy and favor that we have heard about and sung about this morning. One writer has said that God's hesed, God's love, is a completely and undeserved kindness and generosity 
that intervenes on behalf of loved ones and comes to their rescue. And see, God's covenant devotion to us is infused with parental affection. He loves us intensely, even when we're quite unlovely. And so David contemplates all of this as he is physically and spiritually thirsty, and he says, thou art mine. Thou art mine. And so this statement, your love is better than life, it's something I have been sitting with quite recently quite a bit. You see, David is saying that this is not, God's love is not a category within life as though God's love is at the top of the list. He is saying that it is better than all that encompasses life. You could put existence on one side and experiencing God's loyal love on the other, and David says it is no contest. I will take God's love over remaining alive and think about all that we do, especially with modern medicine, all that we do to try to stay alive. But David says, your love and experiencing that love is even better. Now, of course, God's love in Christ will give us eternal life. But David wants us to know that not even physical existence can compare to knowing the love of God. In one sense, nothing else, nothing else matters to us. Can we say this with David? You know, I have to be honest with you, to some degree I can, but not always. And so I need this psalm. I need it. What helped bring it home for me, thinking of a contrast, was just in the last few weeks, uh, I knew someone who died recently, and his obituary is overflowing with accomplishments. Overflowing. Let me just read a few of them to you. Uh, this man owned or he was a managing partner of numerous businesses. He owned 19 Hardy stores, 15 famous David or Dave stores at Midwest thing, uh, two Baskin Robbins shops, a ski shop. He was involved in many real estate ventures. He owned two Shell gas stations. On a more fun note, he gobbled up thrilling experiences. He was into racing fast cars, so he owned classic uh, V12 Jaguars and raced those, and then he won uh, some events with his 66 Corvette Stingray. His obituary said that he golfed some of the most coveted courses all around the world, and he scuba dove the deepest, most stunning reefs on the planet. So I read this and I felt, I'm going to be honest with you, a bit, a bit jealous. Like, man, what is wrong with my bucket list? It's not very full. But then I felt sad. Because I reread it and I realized there is no mention of God here at all. And so friends, would you want at the end of the day, your day, would you want your obituary to highlight your accomplishments, what you own, what you did in business, what you did in school, 
Would you want it to mention all the glorious places on the globe that you visited? Or in some way, would you want it to highlight David's words as applied to your life? Oh God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. Can you say that about your life? And will you be saying that at the end of your life? God's love is better than life. Well, you know, there's a big question in all this. What do I do if I don't quite desire God, like this psalm is talking about? Well, again, that's the whole point of David putting it here. The psalms not only express what we feel, but they shape us when we don't feel it. See, David is praying, my soul faints for you like a parched land. Two British preachers were talking about this passage and they were saying that, that in some way this is so foreign to com- or, uh, contemporary Christianity. And people might read this and hear a message like this and say, well, it, it suggests that something is lacking if I express my struggle and, and the sense that sometimes we're spiritually dry. And then one of the people in this conversation, the person said, no, something is not wrong, quite the contrary, something is quite right. When you can be honest and express that you need God in the parched experiences of your life. You see, we're to sing these words even when we don't feel them, that we might get to the place that we do. If I can flip the words of an old rock song, I want me to want you. (laughs) That's what this prayer is. I want me to want you even when I don't want you. Help me to do so, God. You see, again, David's wilderness experience was intensifying his longings. And in some ways, when we're in a tough place, it is tougher to get distracted when we're out in the dry places. And yet, with all that we have, all of the riches that we have, all the comforts that we have, friends, we're such distracted people. Our phones, the news, all the activities that are always keeping us dialed in and busy, And in some ways, our distractions, I know this is true for me, they become like appetite suppressants where we just kind of numb ourselves. And this is telling us that seeking anything or anyone rather than God's loyal love is like taking our thirst and drinking salt water when we're parched. And taking you back earlier to that quote about a very successful leader in our culture, in our L.A., greater Los Angeles area, what happens is we won't get the success that we're striving for, and so we're frustrated, but more likely, we do get it. We do achieve the success, and then we realize that doesn't last. Marie Antoinette was reported to have said, With all that she had around her, nothing tastes. Nothing tastes. 
You see, anything other than God's covenant devoted love will wear off and it will disappoint you in the end. And I have to learn that again and again and so do you. And so it's good for us to confess the things that we have feasted on that cannot satisfy our soul. A parallel passage to this is Jeremiah 2 where the prophet said, your people have committed this evil. They have forsaken you. We have forsaken you, the fountain of living waters, and we have hewn or fashioned for ourselves cisterns, jars, that cannot hold water. I'm doing that all the time. And so are you. And so David says, confess that. And ask God to focus your scattered longings as Augustine said, as we look to God. Well, in verse 3, David looks up to God. What does he do? By looking back to God's revelation in the sanctuary. You see, out in the dry desert, he is remembering the place that God set apart where God meets with his people, the holy place, the temple. And David is recalling that. He's thirsting for it. He's longing for it. But the New Testament tells us that it's not a holy place, a building like this that we come to ultimately, but it is the holy person through which we enter into the inner sanctum of God. The sanctuary in the heavenly places, Jesus, is that access into the very loyal love of God. And so, dear friends, look upon Jesus in whom we see and feel the love of God that alone can satisfy us. Again, there's a paradox if we're believers. It means that we have this love and yet we don't quite fully experience it. So we pray for more of this. Paul followed this logic in one of the most beautiful prayers ever written in Ephesians 3. He prayed that we would kneel before the Father and pray that according to God's riches, He may grant you and me to be strengthened with power through God's Spirit in our inner being, in our inner person, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. He's already dwelling there, but Paul prays for more of that dwelling so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints, we do this together, that we may have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, that we would know the love of God. That surpasses knowledge. So we have it, and yet we need more of it, that, Paul prays, we may be filled up with all of the fullness of God. That is exactly what David is praying for, though he didn't yet see his Savior, his Son. I want to hone in a little more on David's situation. David was in distress. And what was his distress? His son Absalom was seeking to kill him. 
And so David was kind of a real guy in that way. He had family dysfunction. And which of us doesn't have some sort of family dysfunction? <laughs> you know, the longer I've been in ministry and experienced family life, I know we all have quirks, we all have sin, we all have brokenness, we all have dysfunction. Sometimes we don't want others to see it, but it's there. One comedian said, I smile because you're my family, I laugh because there's nothing you can do about it. We are all dysfunctional. And yet, it's often in our experiences of dysfunction and frustration that we realize that not even pristine family get-togethers, like we had for a day and a half in Oregon, not even those things can ultimately quench our thirst. So use your challenges, use your longings to reorient your focus. Pray up to the Lord what's going on in your lives, in your families, or what's not going on in your lives and in your families. And ask God to strengthen you to experience the loyal love that is beyond knowledge. And so David is seeking, but in verses 80 is satisfied. He moves from confident praise in the wilderness to this expression. He says, my soul will be satisfied, sated as with fat and rich food. You see, Marie Antoinette was wrong. Something does taste. In the King James Version, it says, my soul shall be satisfied as with you got to love this as with marrow and fatness. It's not quite a vegan expression. <laughs> and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. I remember in high school, we were backpacking with a group of people in Kings Canyon. And we were up there for about a week. And at first, eating gorp, you know, gorp, M&Ms, peanuts, raisins, and the like. Um, and dried beef, bourguignon, all that kind of thing. It was kind of fun, it was kind of novel, but the novelty wore off on the second day. <laughs> and we were there for a week. And we had to boil water because, you know, you have all the issues with that. And then your canteen water tastes smoky, so what do you do? You pour orange tang in it, and it tastes disgusting. Um, and this group of 20 or so high schoolers with our leaders, we headed down the hill, and I don't remember the name of it, but we were going toward a mountain diner, and it was unbelievable. It was exquisite. We were longing for burgers and fries and milkshakes. Yes, all in the plural. And I remember with my buddies, that was a satisfying meal. It was a competition as well. Who could eat the most? We could say it was enough. We were satisfied as with fat and marrow. And David is taking that kind of feasting imagery and saying Christ is the meal. Christ is enough. And so because of God's steadfast love in Jesus, we say, I will praise you. And we are confident about the future as we remember the past, as we meditate on Jesus and study him. As we, like David, in the watches of the night and it's hard to sleep, we think about how Christ has always come through for us. 
when we're worried about our finances, when we're concerned about our kids and our grandkids, when we're wondering about what in the world is going on in the world, we bring our frustrations, our disappointments, our fears, our dysfunctions to the Lord and his loyal love. And then David takes us even deeper into an active faith when he says in verse 8, my soul clings to you, O God. The word here is cleaving or to be fastened to somebody. Like Adam cleaved to his wife Eve. Like Ruth in the book of Ruth clung to Naomi saying, I won't let you go. Your people will be my people. You see, David here is praying that his soul follows hard after God. And so friends, I ask you, what is your soul following hard after? What are you clinging to? What are you cleaving to? David says, I cling to the Lord in the shadow of his wings, like a, like a baby bird hiding under her mother's wings. It is there in that safety that we find the satisfaction of God. And this is telling us that Christ is our only drink, our only meal, and our only refuge. And that all other wings will collapse and won't be able to guard us. Well, you see, as we think of King David praying all these things, we are brought ultimately to the true king who was rejected, not simply like Absalom rejected David, but who was rejected by all, really. He went out into the wilderness, and, and when he, David's greater son, when Jesus cried out that he was thirsty on the cross, a Roman soldier took a reed, put a sponge on it, dipped it in cheap wine, basically vinegar, sour wine, and he put it on his mouth. And because Jesus endured through the dry and thirsty land where there is no water, he gained the right to tell us, as he does in John 4, everyone who drinks this water, the water of this world, will be thirsty again. It will never satisfy you. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's what David was longing for. That's what we're longing for. And so may our souls cling to Jesus because he clung to his heavenly Father. He is our shelter. He has put his wings over us. And we hide in his outstretched arms. And we lift up our hands in praise, friends, even when we don't feel it, so that we will feel it again. Let's pray. Father, I ask that David's prayer would become ours. That we would know that this wilderness experience is something that you give to us so that we would long for you and know you, but long for you even more. Help us with this paradox of faith. Help us to know the love, your loyal love that is beyond knowledge. Help us to grasp you, even though we don't have the strength fully to do that. 
God, I pray for any who are suffering here with family dysfunction or discouragement or frustration, that in those experiences, we would cry out to you, that we would cling and cleave to you, and that you would be not only our desire, but our delight, that these would be signals of your transcendence and that you would tell us and help us to know that you have come near, that the thing that we are longing for is ours, and we long for more. We long for more of Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.